get what you want. You can't always get what you want. But if you try sometimes, you might find you get what you need. Good morning, and welcome to Visionaries. And pardon my voice, I have that thing that's going around. <laughs> so, and I'm even home on a phone. Miracle Modern Technology. You find us here on PRN.FM every Monday at 10 a.m. That's 10 a.m. Eastern U.S. time, but you might be anywhere in the world, so check it out. And you can find all our back shows at visionaries.podbean.com. And guess what? we got a new app. So download the PRN app for your iPhone or Android, and you can catch anything, anything we've got anytime. So our special guest today is Bob Walter. Director of the Joseph Campbell Foundation. Bob, welcome to Visionaries. Hey, John. You're quite welcome. I'm glad to be with you. Uh, my pleasure. So um, I, I was thinking of starting at the beginning. You know, I realize uh, we get older, and my students don't. <laughs> so um, uh, Campbell died about 30 years ago in 1987, which is 10 years before most of my students were even born. So perhaps you could start by telling us who Campbell was and why he's important. I'll take a shot at it. Um, Great. First, so Joseph Campbell uh, was a, a popular intellectual. I would best way perhaps to describe him. He wrote books on mythology, uh, comparative religion, uh, cross-cultural motifs, and so on. Um, beginning in the 40s, he wrote a book called The Hero with a Thousand Faces, um, which 50 years later was on the New York Times bestsellers list. Now, Hero with a Thousand Faces is probably the book that put him on the map, if you will. Um, and I'll return to that in a minute. But throughout this period, as he was writing, he was also teaching at Sarah Lawrence College. Um, he, he, he taught there for almost 50 years and retired in the mid-70s. So while he was teaching and writing, he also lectured. He lectured around uh, on the West Coast, the East Coast, and, and, and a bit internationally. Um, he, he's best known, as I say, for, for The Heroes of a Thousand Faces, which came to a resurgent prominence after his death when a PBS series called Joseph Campbell and the Power of Myth uh, with Bill Moyers aired. And it became one of the most watched public broadcast system um, events uh, ever. It rebroadcast over and over and over and over again. And there's a book by the same name. But returning to that first book of his, The Hero of a Thousand Faces, it rebubbled up into consciousness in the 70s, in the late 70s, when, when George Lucas um, remarked that um, he would probably have been unable to write Star Wars if he hadn't come upon The Hero of a Thousand Faces, which gave him, a, if you will, a structure for what this space opera that he had in his head. Um, and the hero with a thousand faces basically speaks of something that's called the hero's journey or the hero's adventure. And what it posits is that under all the great heroic stories and all the great heroic and religious figures and much of our literature, there is a common um, pattern, an al algorithm, if you will, that involves um, three major steps, uh, separation, initiation, and return. Now, what do I mean by that? It means that an individual starts out in a situation, in a quotidian day-to-day -day reality, and something's not right. Um, uh, in its worst case, it's, he's living in the wasteland, so-called. Um, in a better case, he has an uneasiness 
uh, something draws him outside the confines of the village, outside the confines of his comfort zone, and he crosses a threshold into another dimension. So that's separation, separation from your normal life and moving into another life. And in that other life, you meet heroes, and you meet helpers, you meet antagonists. Um, you Dark Knight of the Soul is, is, falls in there, images like being you know, swallowed by the, a whale in the belly of the whale or walking a sword bridge. You're, 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 you're under trial, and you're looking for something. You're looking for that thing that was missing from where you came. And we call that the boon, and, uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a fortuitous and gratuitous blessing of some kind. Sometimes it's a physical object. Sometimes it's a realization. Armed with that, then you have to return. So you you return from initiation, um, initiation, separation, return, and you return back to the place you began. And you have now a new insight, a new story, a new revelation. Sometimes it, it rejuvenates the world, and you you know you're held up as a hero. Sometimes you're considered a fool or an idiot. And you're driven out. Um, so your truth is, your gift is re, is is not reciprocated. Um, so that hero's journey pattern we see it in all kinds of popular literature: Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, um, The Matrix, um, Mad Max, Fury Road, Mad Max in general, just to name some some um, uh, current uh, or more recent uh, pieces of literature and and and, and cinematography. Uh, Campbell's also known for having coined the phrase, follow your bliss. And that phrase has been misunderstood and misused um, as much as it's been plastered all over everything. And the Campbell's, um, I took this from Hindu, te- Hindu teaching as a way to enlightenment. You follow your bliss. Your bliss is not what makes you happy, but necessarily um, it's, it's the thing you can't not do. It's, it's your fate, if you will. It's what you have, what you're called to. So the hero's journey, follow your bliss. These are two big elements of Campbell that have appeared and reappeared over and over again, as they say, in the 40s and through the 40s and 50s in New York intellectual circles, then again in 70s in popular culture and, and in the West Coast counterculture, and then posthumously after he died in the 80s in his interviews with Bill Moyers and Joe, um, on PBS, and subsequently in the in third-party work that, that is all over the place. So when, when I was working with Joe in the late 70s, no one spoke of myth. Um, after the power of myth aired, there was a big table out in front of the Barnes and Noble that used to be on Broadway. Someone had handwritten a sign that said myth, and they dragged out everything they could possibly think of that had come from that television show. And now, when you go into one of the few remaining bookstores that are around, you'll find shelves marked myth and mythology. So yeah, I remember Barnes and Noble in the background. when that series came out. There was this gaping shelf empty because <laughs> all the Campbell books are on back order. That's right. That's right. That's right. You know, and it's, it's, it's ironic that, you know, 50 years after he writes it, it makes it onto the New York times bestsellers list and, and was declared a uh, hero of a thousand faces. It declared by time magazine, one of the 100 most influential books of the 20th century. And it's been cited by all kinds of people, most recently by Ray Dalio, um, Bridgewater, associates who, who credits coming upon the hero of a thousand faces with giving him the uh, the understanding that he was now in the return phase of his journey and need to bring something back to the world so it, it's really had tremendous impact in, in, in all kinds of arenas so bob one of the things that's important about campbell is um 
and I'm glad you pointed out Follow Your Bliss because someone can put a uh, 60-, 70-year career into um, uh, a whole rich array of ideas and then get reduced to one phrase. And Campbell wrote a lot of other books and covered a huge amount of other material, which I think is why he's so, you know, I, I don't know if any of our listeners or even too many people you or I know have read all of Campbell. Those uh, Master of God are a lot to plow through. So what are some of the other things that he wrote and, and the other areas of his explorations? Uh, well, his last opus, Left Uncompleted, which is when I began working with him, was called The Historical Atlas of World Mythology. It was nothing short of what he called humankind's one great story, in large, illustrated um, volumes uh, with, with cartography that traced the evolution of human consciousness from earliest or, organisms up through uh, human early hominids and speciation, up through earliest burials, and was intended to progress right up to present time. It was left unfinished. Um, that That's a biggie. Now, it's important to point out to John that although he wrote all these things, you know, when we started working together in the 70s, he hadn't published a book in almost eight years, and no one was interested. Um, mm. Prior to that, he published something called Myths to Live By. He published the four-volume um, Massive God that you mentioned. Um, he published something called Flight of the Wild Gander, um, which we just reissued in in a in a, a new paperback edition as part of the collected works and it's it's now an ebook available also. So um those are a few of them. His earliest thing was where the, the two came to their father. Um that was a, a commentary on a on a Navajo creation myth. He he was deeply, deeply affected by um indigenous traditions, Native Americans and what he came to call primal people, um and their traditions. And so um, subs- you know, all during this time, work was stacking up. Um, the foundation has undertaken the publication of the collected works of Joseph Campbell, um, which, it, you know, so as things have gone out of print or become available, we've, we've taken the copyright back and reissued them in the uniform edition. But we, we're up to around 16, 17 titles there, and a whole bunch of those were things that I had on lists in the late 70s that we were going to publish when we had our publishing company. <laughs> but we did you know, <laughs> I mean, no one's yeah. even interested in the publishing company. We had to start a publishing company to pub- for him to get published. Um, and, and, and so we've just been mining that, that mother load of material that he left behind and, and bringing it out. And so we brought out a book on goddesses. We brought out a book on the Arthurian traditions and the quest for the grail. Um, another book called Pathways to Bliss. Uh, he brought out his work on James Joyce which was another major thing. He wrote one of his early books was a skeleton key to Finnegan's Wake. He was one of the first um, people to try to uh, you know, uh, unravel with Henry Morton Robinson. They tried to unravel James Joyce's masterwork and tell people how to uh, read it. Uh, no one knew what to, to make of it. Uh, so we brought out Mythic Worlds, Modern Words, which is his um, progression through the works of Joyce. He, he leads a reader from Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man through Ulysses and then through Finnegan's Wake. And we've also reissued a skeleton key to Finnegan's Wake, which has been in print nonstop since the early 40s. So it's a wide, wide-ranging um, um, oeuvre that he left us, which, you know, from fairy tales to um, cultural history and development to philology to, uh, and, you know, just it, 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 it's all over the place. In fact, 
and a deeply, deeply rooted in psychology. Uh, Freud's all over here with a thousand faces, and later he edited a portable Jung. So he dove deep into the works of Jung and uh, edited again um, the six volumes papers from the Aronos yearbooks, which was a an annual event that was held at Jung's Bollingen Foundation in Switzerland. So, um, you know, it, it, part of I think part of, I think that the breadth of Joe's um, knowledge and the way he leapt from discipline to discipline and from made these connections that took him outside of, um, of a traditional discipline's comfort range was one of the reasons that he was um, sort of uh, without honor in the academy. Uh, in, in right. his, at the time of his, you know, his later years and his death, he, he, he was um, writing for, a, you know, for an informed and general populace. He was writing scholarly works, but he was not, um, he couldn't find a niche in the academy. As I say, there was nothing called myth at that point, except as a subset of maybe anthropology or, or, or religion or uh, comparative literature. Uh, these different areas considered myth a tool. Uh, Campbell considered myth the, the, the base rock of all of these. Wow. So, listen, let's uh, step aside for a moment and... Tell our audience what the Joseph Campbell Foundation is, where they find it online, what they can find there, and stuff like that. Sure. Um, the Joseph Campbell Foundation, which we refer to by its initials, JCF, um, is at the jcf.org, jcf.org on the web. And there you'll find background on Campbell. You'll find links to all his work um, that's, that's available, in, 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 not only in English, but in different languages, because at this point, I think we have 21 titles, uh, uh, 24 titles in 17 different languages um, uh, where we, you know, we've worked with foreign publishers. Um, there's links to the collected audio. At this particular point, there's approaching 90 audio lectures divided into three series, um, each series with six volumes. There's also something called Mythological Resources Database, which will um, Get, lead you to to books and events and uh, and articles and blogs and things like that that deal with myth and mythology. Um, there's another section there is Campbell and culture because we've taken sort of you know um, corralling you know the, the impact Campbell has had on culture through uh, pointing people to YouTube clips and to um, articles and and, and so on. Um, there's also, um, so the foundation does that. We also have a Facebook page. Uh, we have about a quarter of a million people on our main Whoa. Facebook page. And we also, and, and, and we also have a, uh, uh, something called a, 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 a forum on Facebook, which is by invitation. You can apply to join us. about 10,000 people there in, in a lot of deep and threaded conversations. Um, they draw also upon an early feature we had on our website. We were one of the first websites. We had a website in 1985. And uh, one of our earliest things was called Conversations of a Higher Order. So these were threaded conversations of mythologically impacted um, uh, subjects uh, that had many, many, many participants. At that time, there was no place else besides the well, the whole earth electronic link, where meaningful conversations like this were taking place. And we retired that about four years ago because there were a lot of other places now where people could have substantive conversations um, but then we re resurrected it as a, as a, a group on uh, Facebook. So the right. links to that um, 
There's also there's also a, 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 we have a program called mythological roundtables, which are locally organized um, and directed groups. Um, at this point, on four continents, um, there are you, there's a map that can show you where they are and, and you know how you can connect with them or how one can start one themselves. Uh, so that's a few of the features. It's it's a really rich website. You can scroll around there. You can sign up, and we send out a weekly myth blast, which is a, a, a little tiny a brief essay on something of import that's going on in the world or in, in the realm of mythology. Um, you can also go on the site and using keywords, you can trace through Campbell's works and other works on key ideas um, that, that he's played with. So um, that's the best place. We've been since our inception, a virtual organization, meaning there's no there there like Oakland. <laughs> you know, you, uh-huh. we don't have a central headquarters. Um, we never have. Uh, all of the people who, who keep the foundation going are so-called working associates. They're mostly volunteers. Um, they're scattered on three continents. Um, and, and, you know, we see each other, you know, every few years in, in different configurations. A lot of volunteer effort has gone into making the foundation work. Um, so it's a, it's, it's a continuing work in progress and, uh, and it's grown deeply over the years. And John, you were, you were involved on our early board of advisors and uh, it's amazing for, you know, I think for me, it must be for you too, to look back and, you know, where yeah, it's always, it's always fun from. to be on a board with uh, Rockefeller and George Lucas. <laughs> Doesn't hurt, does it? <laughs> you can you can bump into some fun people. So listen, um, the uh, I just want to point out that that historical atlas that you were working on with Campbell uh, had a few initial volumes. They're long out of print, but the writing in there is some beautiful really deep writing and i gather you have that available as ebooks now yes um not all of it though john we we we're, what we did is um there's a kind of a funny story here this started out the atlas started out as one volume and about two and a half years in it, joe had written so much that it broke into two books going to be um pre-literate and literate mythologies and then a few years later, we were working together, and it was so voluminous that we broke it into four volumes, uh, the, you know, based on a, an, a based on a schema of um, Leo Frobenius, a German anthropologist who, who um, whose uh, taxonomy Campbell adopted. Um, and then it, 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 again, Campbell, the subject kept opening up, and it ended up it was going to be um, four volumes in multiple parts. At, at the time of Campbell's death, we. We published volume one in two parts, and we were we had the first three parts of volume two ready to go. We're almost ready to go. I ended up completing them over the course of the year after his death. So five parts were put out. But these were big and oversized and very complicated, and, and they were pre-digital. So maps, for example, with a lot of data might have as many as 16, 18, 20 sheets of acetate in order to get all of the, the different markings so you, on the You're map. working with a lot um, of razor so blades and paste. Yep. Oh, yeah. I I, I can't try. Every time he changed, moved a footnote or, or a picture, all the references had to change. I spent so many hours with a single edge razor blade and waxed type, <laughs> you know, cutting things out and putting them in. Um, but, but but even at that, it was you know we realized that what we needed, what we had to do, was reformat it a bit because I mean we we weren't in a position 
um, to bring out a, you know, a 10 by 13 or 14 inch book, um, it's just impossible that you can find places to print such a thing. So we, we broke the, we've broken the Atlas into, into more discrete chunks. Um, and where it used to have, for example, it was it, uh, Joe loved cross references. So he'd make a remark and then he'd say parenthesis figure 13. Well, it's one thing if it's in a book, uh, we, we went back as we've been remaking it. We have to, show figure 13 there again because it might be in another section we have not re -re we have not yet released the very first part which was um joe's scientific myth of uh, creation um because uh this is data from we we were working with data that was cutting edge in the 80s (laughs) you know in the early 80s and so we have an anthropologist uh, or an archaeologist and an anthropologist and a couple of their students who are who are currently vetting all of that material to try to bring it up to t- up to speed. So, so right. w- once it's up to speed, we'll re-release the beginning. But the rest yeah, are coming I'm, out in these discrete parts. We uh, call them e-singles. Um, so let's uh, ask the following question. So our audience hears about this, and there are attractive ideas here, and perhaps they've heard a bit about Campbell here and there. Um, where should somebody start? Where do you? How do you dive in? I'll just tell you a little story. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not a heavy-duty scholar, but I'm sort of confident in my, uh, in my academic capabilities. And I used to go to the A Street Bookstore, and these Campbell books kept accumulating because I guess that's when he was adding the volumes of um, Mass of God. And I was so intimidated, I could never figure out where to penetrate and how to get into them. So fortunately, then he's, when he retired from Sarah Lawrence, he started lecturing in New York, and then that gave me the key. But for our um, for people today who have no background in this at all, how should they start? Well, you know, I, I suggest often that I mean a lot of people end, end up getting a, a copy of, or, of the of the videos of uh, Joseph Campbell and the Power of Myth with Bill Moyers because it's very accessible. Um, right. So that that's if you want to watch something in that's available out there now. Um, and his lectures, a number of his lectures, are, we've brought out under in video called and in a series called Mythos M Y T H O S. There's 15 hours there, um, so that's video. Um, also, as you know, John, when he lectured, he, he was he had a different speaking style than a writing style. His writing style was heavily influenced by the Germanic. Um, Writers that that he had he had he had swum in whose works he'd swum, um, and so his speaking style though was much more direct. So consequently, I, I think another place for people to have a point of entry is to 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 go on to jcf.org and, and look at the audio lectures and you know pick a subject or a title because we've grouped the volumes around themes. They're not the uh, series one is his early lectures, series two is the lectures in his mid years and Series three, which we're, we're now about halfway into, um, are his later lectures. So you can pick a theme that you're interested in, um, and 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 you know order up one lecture or order up a you know a, a volume of five lectures around that theme. That's another great way if you want to listen. Oh. You want to read. What I think people ought to start with is myths to live by. 
it, it, it was done in the you know, in, in the around, around this nineteen seventy. It, it's lecture. It, it's a series of chapters um, drawn on lectures that he gave uh, at Cooper Union um, in the sixties, and they're they're very accessible and they're wide ranging. So mythology and schizophrenia, the moon landing, um, the historical development of mythology. So he touches on a lot of the themes that go through his other work. That's a very accessible point to, to go. And right. then finally, there's a book called um, A Joseph Campbell Companion, which is kind of like a, you know, it's got a different editor's name on it, but I'm proud of it because I kind of put it together. And it, it's like a river through Campbell's work. And it, it contains extracts from his other published works. So you can float down that river and if you see an idea or a theme that grabs you, you can check the footnote and it'll take you and it'll tell you where that is and then you might want to get that primary source and, and, and go further. Right. I know I'm just curious. Every once in a while I'll go check Amazon bestsellers and Campbell seems to be uh, selling very well. Are these books selling these days? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, the hero jumped back up into the top 100 bestsellers on on Amazon, you know, in, in the late fall, um, uh, we think that's partly because of Ray Dalio talking everywhere he went about how important it was, and you know, he brought out his principles book, which was heavily promoted, and and there's a lot of Campbell in there, the Hero of a Thousand Faces, particularly. So, and it's, similarly, you know, there was a, a Star Wars release, and so there was a lot more discussion every time there's a new Star Wars new oh, article you come out about about Campbell and the Hero's journey. Um, and you know, and and similarly, George Miller brought out you know, and, and when he, when Fury Road came out, he talked about the importance. By the way, the writer of, of, of Mad Max Fury Road, um, one of George Miller's writers, was a regular participant in the Sydney Australia Mythological Roundtable. Uh, he oh. was with them for, you know, and for two years, that roundtable independently on its own had decided to um, explore the idea of a female hero. Um, uh-huh. And. And uh, they did. And then uh, look at the script Vico wrote. Uh, speaking of scripts, uh, a, a few months back we had Christopher Volger uh, on this show. So why don't you tell our audience what his book is about and how, if you are uh, an aspiring uh, film person, that might be uh, something that you should be aware of. Oh, yeah. Well, Chris, Chris's book is, is The Writer's Journey, and and its origin story is, is you know, kind of says what it is, um, and, and that is that, that he was a head of a script reading at, at, at Universal, I believe it was, and he had a number of people reading scripts for him, and he wrote a memo to sort of guide the readers, saying what he was looking for. And, you know, uh, it was a I don't know eight or ten or twelve page memo, and so my brief description is it probably doesn't do it justice, but in essence, it it laid out Campbell's idea of the hero's journey and said that this was underneath most successful films. And so if they had a bunch of scripts to get through, they should open it about a third of the way in. If they you know read a, either, you know, a few pages either side of a third of the way in, and you should be seeing a call to adventure and someone leaving, you know, separating from their one world and moving into another. And then you should go two thirds of the way in. And if you don't see something that the return, um, he said, that, that he said, so, you know, if you don't see the, the call to adventure, the, the separation, you don't see the return, don't bother reading the rest of the script. Um, well, this thing flew around Hollywood, uh, hand to hand to hand. Um, and, uh, and then Michael Vesey, who's actually a good, good friend of mine, um, heard about it, picked it up, and asked him to turn it into a book. And that became the writer's journey. 
And it basically talks about exactly what we've talked a little bit about here and that how that that um, that track of the hero's journey is 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 so dominant. Um, you know, there's a you know, there, you know it, it, it's it's a little bit Aristotelian, John. I mean, if you think about it, um, a beginning, a middle, and an end. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And the middle can you know the middle can elaborate all kinds of different ways. You, you, you can get narratives that that, that play it backwards. Um, we've seen that, but it's still the same story. So, uh, so yeah. I like to tell my students. Yeah, I like to tell my students that uh, you can violate a formula, but you have to have a reason. Right. You have to know exactly. the formula you gotta know before the you violate it. You know. You got to know it. Well, I'll, I'll tell you a little, share a little anecdote here with you, John, and that is, uh, you know, I have some friends who were involved in in doing the the big events around Campbell Centenary in '95, and Several of them were in, in, in game developers, and, and I mentioned a few years back to one of them that said, "You know, it's my son's a gamer, and I, and I see the hero's journey all over." And, and he said, "Oh yeah, every, everybody, everybody in the gaming business." And I said, "Well, n- nobody talks about it." And he said, "Oh well, let's talk about it." So he set up a panel um, at the Southeast International Interactive Game Ex- Expo um, in Atlanta, and I was on this panel with, with eight game developers who had like right. two hundred. 200 hours of game development between them. And they all talked about how the hero's journey impacted their work. But the common theme was you don't follow the formula. You know, you, what you need to know is every, you start out, you, you have this visceral understanding of the pattern. And so then, then you know, you, you, you go on the adventure the, and, and you're building the game. And he said, inevitably, you hit a wall. Inevitably, something's not working. He said, that's when we stop, we step back, and we break out the hero with a thousand faces again, and we say, okay, where are we here? You know, we've gone off track. We're, we're lost in the forest. Now what? And, and he said, and, and, and he said, it carries us forward. Um, so that, that's, you know, ap- apropos, you tell your students, you know, you don't, you don't throw the whole thing out, and you, and you don't faithfully follow it. You know, like Joe loved to say, you don't eat the menu. You, eat, you know, the menu just points you toward the dinner. The dinner right. is what you eat. Right. I, uh, when, when, you know, you, you're describing developing a story or a game and then something happens, reminds me of the remark by Mike Tyson, everybody has a plan till they get hit in the face. <laughs> and then, you know, then you got to start improvising, but it helps to know the lay of the land. Right, right. It helps to know to keep your left up if you're worried about getting hit in the face. Yeah. So, uh, Bob, I um, years ago I had the good fortune to attend one of your mythological toolboxes, or maybe a couple of them, at Esalen, and I gather you've been doing that over the years. So how about telling our listeners what Esalen Institute is, what Campbell's relationship is to it, and how they might attend one of your mythological toolboxes? Okay. Well, well first, first of all, um, Esalen Institute is, is is arguably the birthplace of the human potential movement. It's a it's a little oasis uh, in Big Sur, California, perched in the you know midway between northern and Cali- southern California, accessible only by Route One when Route One U.S. Route One is open. And um, it's, it it began in the, in the '60s. And Michael Murphy, whose family owned the property, and a man named Dick Price, when they were envisioning what to do with this property. One of the people they turned to in the early days was Joe. Mm. Joe came and did some of the early presentations. 
And so over the years then, he would go back there regularly, and, and in the last two decades of his life, he would go there on his birthday every year. Um, and, and then uh, when he passed, we continued that tradition. We had what we called what became a mythological toolbox because in the very beginning it was simply an extension of what they called the Campbell Week. The mythological toolbox, is, as it's, it's evolved uh, over the last 25 years, is an experience um, intended to try to enable people to understand the process of mythogenesis, of how myths are created, how their myths are created, and the myths that they're living by. And we do it through play, which now is terribly controversial, but even 15 years ago when I was started, I kept calling this a play shop in, in yes on catalog copy and they kept changing it to workshop um, but it's important the, the idea here is play um, well, well, Joe what's loves controversial to say about what play? you do with play as soon as you stop playing it becomes work and it loses all of its mythological yeah um, so the universe is god's play so the structure of the week basically follows again the hero's journey um and through individual exercises and group things we 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 reweave our own story with the stories of others. Um, I, I, I guess that's the best way to say it without getting too um, too meta in my conversation. Because it really, you know, at the workshop, you know, um, we do things, we talk about them, but we don't just talk about them. We do things. And it's a lot right. of play, um, and folks from all over the globe. And, and and you can find out more about it at, at jcf.org. It's every March we do it, and now I've been doing, for the last few years, I've been doing one other one in the States um, in July in upstate New York. Great. Uh, well, let's encourage uh, any of our listeners to look that up, see if they can make it. Um, so what else should we talk about? We have a few more minutes, and, um, you know, one of the things I, I notice is that there's been uh, – I teach history of architecture, and I'm with a big team. And we do survey from, you know, caves to today, from beginning to today. Mm-hmm. And we cover everything, lots of non-Western. Uh, you know, we're strong on China and Japan and India. But when I'm giving the lectures, it's with um, the kind of insights that I derive from Campbell. And my late wife, Mimi Lobel, was um, – gave those lectures at one point. She was she referred mm-hmm. to comparative architecture as as a tribute to Campbell's comparative mythology. And today that isn't done so much anymore. Now it's always looking at post colonialism. In other words, not what was China like in its own right throughout its ancient history, but how did it interact to the West and how did the West exploit it? And so I'm wondering what your take on academia is and where you see Campbell's, shall we say, depth approach applied and resisted. Well, you know, my experience um, in, in, in the academy, John, has been uh, a bit contentious. Um, I mean, and, and maybe my take on Campbell's work is, is a bit of projection, but, but I always worked at the inter- in, you know, the interface between a, a bunch of different disciplines, and, and was where does it settle? Was always a, was always a question, and uh, and then you know, in in the academy, you, you're 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 encouraged to know more and more about uh, 
smaller and smaller subject. <laughs> uh, you know, it, 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 it's a it's a divide. You know, you, know, you keep dividing it down um, the subject down because you, the original research in your subject is you know is is you know a, a, is typically arisen that way. Um, Joe Joe was was you know if you want to think of that as vertical dive. Joe's was a horizontal sweep. Now, the thing that unnerved people is he could take a deep vertical drive in any given subject. Um, so he could, he could go deep into Jung or deep into Freud um, if he chose to. Uh, and, uh, you know, and every, we have one, one, uh, one piece of film that hasn't been released yet, but, you know, somebody says, oh, well, you know, you're always talking about a little bit of this, and you jump from one thing to the other, anything in depth, and, you know, you know, story in depth. And he says, sure, uh and then I think he, in the next particular case, he goes into you know, a 50-minute um, improvisational on trip through the Odyssey. Uh, so oh. you know, he, uh, with, you know, with side side things into psychology, side things into theology, side things into anthropology, into early mother goddess cults. So, so, so that that to me was um, now now we're starting to see that happen again. I mean, back in, you know, when we were in school, <laughs> when I was in school in the, you know, in the late 60s, or when, when um, I was on the founding faculty at CalArts in, in, in the early 70s, you, you, you were starting to see, again, um, a resurgence of, uh, you know, of, of self-defined majors and people who, who were trying to bring together um, approaches that weren't typically within, fell within one sphere in the academy. And, and then it kind of, you know, there's a backlash to that. Just as there was a societal backlash, and you know that was in the later years of Joe's life, and I see the pendulum having swung the other way again because now we see young, younger scholars coming into the academy, and they're 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 not afraid to you know go outside their discipline a bit, and they're not afraid to um, push the edges. Um, in fact, it's, it's almost like you can't go deeper in certain in certain disciplines. It did you know the <laughs> we've, we've hit the bottom. And so the, the unique insights now come by moving horizontally um, and seeing how, for example, oh, well, American Anthropological Association, which wouldn't give Joe the time of day, and a few years back did the, the uh, anthropology of consciousness did you know the implications of Joseph Campbell's work on contemporary neuroscience. Okay. So, you know, and, and so you start to see now where people are, are, are approaching the material in a more open way. Um, and more willing to, you know, to, to, to bring bring together things that would never have, you know, never have been in the same, you know, same same you know same lecture, let alone in the same sentence. Right. So listen, since we're on the subject of uh, uh, academic controversy, um, could you describe Campbell's relationship to Carl Jung? His relationship to Carl Jung. Well, you know he. It's thought that because he wrote the camp, uh, because he edited uh, the portable Jung, that he was, um, in fact, you know, a Jungian, um, and uh, and and he wasn't truly. He, he met Jung only a couple of times. He, he attended a couple of these um, Bollingen Foundation uh, uh, events uh, as an observer, and he, he presented a paper there. Um, but but he 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 came to Jung, you know, as he came to so many things through his reading. Um, there's that anecdote where people would say, "Oh, Mr. Campbell, you're so, you know, you're so wise and informed. Um, you know, do, you, do, do, do you have a, do you meditate?" He said, "Of course." He said, "Well, what's your form of meditation?" He said, "I underline sentences in books." Cool. Um, 
and and, and he you know and he did. And I mean, I, I, he he may be one of the only people alive who who had every single word in every single volume of the collected works of Carl Jung up to the at least up to the point where he, you know, um, he he edited the Board of Jung. And I mean, many many other. Um, Many a goodly number of volumes have come out, and as they've completed the collected works that were available to him at that point, but um, you know, up to the point he edited the Carl, he edited it. So, so people thought he knew Jung really well, and and I don't think that's necessarily true. There's some correspondence, but it's very, very cursory. Mike, could you describe what Jung means by an archetype, and what Campbell means, and how they might be similar and different? Oh, I can try. Um, I mean, I, I think that Campbell tried to use Jung's idea of an archetype, um, but you know, unfortunately, when it, when when we talk about uh, you know, let me, let me back up. It's, it's with Jung talking about an archetype as being a kind of energy that manifests itself. I mean, you have a if you will, almost a wheel of archetypes inside you. And so you, you, you know, different energies will move you at different times and they come up and, and we can see, you know, personifications of these, of these individuals, um, you know, uh, in, 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 in culture. Um, but, you know, when, when Joe starts talking about archetypes within a, um, uh, uh, a, a narrative, what what tends to happen is people tend to focus on the persona, on, on the manifestation of the archetype, but not the energy that he's trying to talk to. He, mm. Let me give you an example. Actually, let me let me give you a little, little passage here from Nero's A Thousand Faces, which sure. I think well, speaks to this, John, and it, it also takes us in another direction. So this is in the mid-1940s. Joe wrote, the figure of the tyrant monster is known to the mythologies, folk traditions, legends, and even nightmares of the world. And his characteristics are everywhere essentially the same. He is the hoarder of the general benefit. He is the monster, avid for the greedy rights of me and mine. The havoc wrought by him is described in mythology and fairy tale as being universal throughout his domain. This may be no more than his household, his own tortured psyche, or the lives he blights with the touch of his friendship or assistance. Or it may amount to the extent of civilization. The inflated ego of the tyrant is a curse to himself and his world. No matter how his affairs seem to prosper, self-terrorized, fear-haunted, alert at every hand to meet and battle back the anticipated aggressions of his environment, which are primarily the reflection of the uncontrollable impulses to acquisition within himself, the giant of self-achieved independence is the world's messenger of disaster, even though in his mind he may entertain himself with humane intentions. Mm. <laughs> Remind you of anybody. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, so, so, so here, here's a good example, because Joe is talking about this archetypal tyrant monster figure, okay? Right. It's very, it's, it's, it's very easy, you know, to, to see it, the personification of this in different traditions and even in the, you know, in the, in the, you know the political arena today, um, but when you focus on the on the particular person or the particular personage or figure, you 
tend to lose this archetypal understanding of what this, this figure represents in, in a bigger drama than, than the, the parochial drama in which that figure is, you know, is found. Hmm. So we, we, sh- we should try to be in touch with both, the uh, archetype yes. and the manifestation, and be able to understand their relationship. Yeah, you need to, and you know, and in fact, you know, when you talk about in in, in, in dramaturgy, if, if if the archetypal energy isn't there, the character's thought of as flat and has no dimension. But if if you know, if you're just trying, if you're just writing an archetypal figure, that, that figure has no real persona. Um, you, you know, the scene is that you know, it seems that that character becomes a glyph and not a personage, and so you, it's it's a, it's a it is that sword bridge. It's real easy to fall off either side, and it's it's rare when you get it right, which is why great work. You know why we have a lot of uh, a lot of uh, I would call them mediocre works of art. Um, you know because people fall off this bridge one way or another. Right. It's very very hard to maintain that tension. So you mentioned some people who are maybe working today within Campbell's tradition in one way or another. Do you want to um, maybe go through some of those that might be of interest to our audience? Uh, do, do, do you mean uh, in, in, in the popular media? Yeah. And not, well, not, I, I, I mean, not, I, 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 I'm a big, big um, believer in the fact that, 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 that the mythos today is, um, is, is carried is carried indeed by the um, by film and by cinema Be- because when you you know Joe Joe would say you know, well the myths of tomorrow are in the psyches of the artists of today meaning that it's the artists who give form to uh, to to the mythological impulses moving through through a culture and so um, so so you you. you Look at, at the way we've learned, for example, about any given culture. It's it's through it, we learn their mythology. Well, it's not just through the spoken narrative stories. It, it's also um, it's also things like the the songs and the rituals and and, and the images that are made, the, 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 the drawings, the paintings, the the icons. Um, and so you 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 find uh, you, you you will find those resonances. In, in in a lot of different in a lot of different arenas. Now, I think it's really really clear when you talk about, um, uh, uh, as I say about film, um, b- because in film you bring all of these together. Uh, you, you have a visual, and then you, you don't at the moment have a spatial, but you know VR is 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 threatening to give us that. So uh, you know at some point. You know, we'll we'll take on the spatial dimension. There's already already a ritual quality to, to to whether you, you know, maybe it was more of a ritual quality when you actually went to the theater. Um, but now, you know, people make a ritual out of say binge watching a series or something like that. Uh, so, so there is that. But but you see, in in in, in a film, you've got all these different um, you know different elements working. And, and and then so, so you see you know um, other folks like uh, you know you you can see um, uh, Wynton Marsalis example you know 
he was interviewed. He said the one book he takes everywhere with him is, is he's the hero with a thousand faces. Oh, cool. Which, which I thought was kind of cool. And then you had other people coming up and talking about it. Barbara Streisand talked about when she made her, 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 her self-portrait album, that, that she was driven to do that by reading Campbell. Oprah Winfrey has had a number, number of people on her show um, talking about Campbell. Um, the uh, name uh, Gilbert, I uh, think, Eat, Eat, Pray, Love, the author of that. There's a two-part po- podcast with Oprah and her. She she talks about the, it's, they they spend most of it talking about about Campbell. Um, you know, right. Sally Fields, another one uh, with Oprah Winfrey. So there's a lot of characters, a lot of folks out there who who have come forward and talked about the impact of of Joe's work on their art. Um, not just, you know on their lives, yes, but on their art. Um, you know, uh, and and so uh, and, and to the extent that you know that whatever they give creative expression, I, I'm I'm not using art. I'm using art in a very broad, 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 broad way. Um, yeah. yeah. So listen, uh, sure. I think we should wrap up. Uh, anything else you want to remind us about Campbell? Uh, yeah, I just want to say one thing. Um, particularly, this is I think aimed at at, at students and 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 those you know, um, and that is that you know, Joe Joe was ceaseless and tireless in in his work. Um, yeah, even when even when it didn't seem to be going very very well, and uh, you remember one time when we were we were really behind, you know, very far behind, and nothing was going right in this multi-year process of the atlas. And I asked him if he ever got ever got discouraged, and he said, "Yeah, yeah, of course, I'm human." And I said, "Well, what you know, what do you, what do, you do about that? Because I'm pretty discouraged right now." And he said, "Well, you just have to keep your focus on the work and tell yourself that if it's." Of, of positive impact on, on one person, then it will have been worth it. Um, you know, he died without knowing at all the impact he had. Um, and yeah. so when, you know, he spent his whole life in that little two-room apartment, you, you were there, John. And, uh, you know, and he, you have to, you know, so what did I learn from him? You know, I, I learned, learned from him, you know, the Buddhist Bodhisattva tradition of joy, joyful participation in the sorrows of the world. And, and you keep, keep your focus on the work. And, you know, and trust that the universe, you know, you know that, that you're doing it because the universe has asked you to do it for some reason, and it's going to have some positive impact. Great. So, listen, my guest has been Bob Walter. He's the director of the Joseph Campbell Foundation, jcf.org. Uh, look them up, and you can get Campbell's tapes and books there. And they're also, the books are on Amazon. Uh, this is John LaBelle on prn.fm. Catch us here every Monday at 10 a.m. And, Bob, thank you for being with us. My pleasure, John. I hope you find your voice. (laughs) Thanks.